welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 through 14. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity in a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we're, uh, we're again just uh, thankful again for your word and just the variety of what you give us. Lord, that you would give us such a passage in all of its bleakness and that we could sit with its truths and understand more about the world that the world that is, the world that's broken, the world that's fallen, the world that's fallen because of sin. And we pray, Lord, as we spend time in this book of Ecclesiastes, we pray, Lord, that you would give us true wisdom, that you would help us to see the, the vapor of, of this world, but then the solidness of you and your promises, and that we would return into the world as your, as your people to be a light, to enjoy the gifts you have and to proclaim the gospel of your Son. And Lord, as I come before this text, it's, it's very evident that we need you. So many different needs in this room, so many different places people are coming from. Um, for some, a passage like that is, is jarring and they just don't want to hear it. Is there in a place that just isn't in that place? And then there's some here that know the, the great bitterness of the passage. And uh, Lord, we, we need you to come. We need you to speak to us. We know, Lord, that your word is powerful and does not return void, and it accomplishes exactly what you desire. And so we pray, Lord, 
that you would desire to give grace and hope and joy and peace in you to those who need it. And we pray, Lord, for repentance and change for those who need it. And um, this is your work, and it's amazing in our eyes, and we pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series in the Old Testament, and what we're doing is each week we're taking a, a book of the Old Testament and just look at that one book that Sunday to see what it tells about the story that God's telling with the whole world and with all of history. And this week we're in Ecclesiastes, and we're finding out what it says about meaning. And uh, in the first verse, we learn that these are the teachings of somebody in Hebrew who's called Kohelet. Kohelet, it's translated preacher. It means to gather things. He's a collector. Um, probably both that he collects people around him to teach and he collects sayings and wisdom to give. Ecclesiastes is part of the Old Testament group of books called the wisdom literature. It includes the Proverbs, the Psalms, Job, and the Song of Solomon. And Ecclesiastes is, a, is a really a great counterbalance to the book of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs next to Ecclesiastes, you'll see a big difference. Because Proverbs is giving us how things work in the world when it makes sense. Ecclesiastes is giving us wisdom for a broken world that's often perplexing and maddening and frustrating and just inexplicable. Book of Proverbs general flow is good things come to those who do good, which is generally true. But Ecclesiastes says not so fast, right? It knows the bitterness of this world. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke said this, Ecclesiastes has been called the black sheep of the canon of Scripture. It is a delight to skeptics and a despair to saints. It's a delight to skeptics because it is so realistic and so honest about our lived experience. I think a lot of times it would be a good idea to use Ecclesiastes for evangelism purposes. It might seem like a weird place to start, but people read this book and they go like, aha, this gets me. This is my experience, you know. And saints are bothered by it because it's so jarring when you compare it to the rest of Scripture. On the first reading, Ecclesiastes sounds contradictory and cynical and just downright depressing, but also extremely beautiful, extremely beautiful. And what we're going to find with this wonderful little book is it's the help we need to kind of pry our hope off the, off the fleeting things of this world and attach our hope to the Lord. So this morning, we're going to see there's three big themes in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see how they fit together to point to Christ. And the themes are everything is vanity, which you kind of already saw, fear God, and then enjoy the vanity. Okay, so those are the three things. Everything is vanity, fear God, enjoy the vanity. The first part is very bleak. Hang with me. It will be bleak, but it's good, and it's important to face. The key word that's introduced right away is the word vanity. It's the Hebrew word hebel, H-E-B-E-L would be the way you'd write it in English. Can you guys say with me hebel? Hebel, okay? He says over and over again, everything's hebel. What is hebel? Hebel is vanity, it's meaninglessness, it's quite literally vapor. So the idea in Ecclesiastes is all the things that we might grab onto, to hope in, to find meaning in, to find permanent joy in, as we're grabbing them, they, they disappear in our hands. It's like a vapor. It vanishes. And we've all had that experience in different degrees. Seeking meaning in this world, he says, is like striving after the wind. It's hebel. Everything's hebel. Everything's a vapor. The whole book is framed this way. In the beginning, verse 2, you can see he says, vanity of vanities, the preacher says, everything's vanity. And then at the end, in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, vanity of vanities, the preacher says, all is vanity. And just to show you how beautifully crafted this book is, it's two halves. There are 111 verses each. And then right at the hinge between the 111 verses, it says this, this also is vanity and striving after the wind. 
It's so beautifully crafted to show us in the beginning, end, and middle of life, everything is hebel. Everything's vapor. There's nothing solid, nothing lasts. It's all striving after the wind. And Kohelet now is going to walk us through life and show us that every part is hebel. Every part's a vapor. First, the work. He, he started in the passage that Jaime wrote. Jaime didn't write it. It would be impressive. would be like, good job, man. He's not that old. Um, in the part that Jaime read is about work. And you look at verse 3. It says, what does a man gain from all the toil which he toils under the sun? And what he goes on to show us is that work never really accomplishes the thing we set out to do. We have ideas about what our work should be, and we never quite get the thing that we meant to do. Things fall apart. Perfection and completion always elude us. Just when we think it's done, there's more. It's a futility, right? Uh, Eventually, our work seems like the myth of Sisyphus, you know, the myth of Sisyphus where he rolls up the rock every day, and in the morning, the rock's at the bottom again, you know? For those of you who are a little more lowbrow, it's Groundhog Day, right? It's over and over the same thing. Work is an endless treadmill, right? That you get on, you run as hard as you can, you run as hard as you can until the time that's appointed for you to be done running, and then they put another guy on the treadmill and they forget you were ever on it. Work is hebel. It's it's a mist. It's vanity. There's the vanity of wisdom. You know, you think, well, wisdom, that's a little bit better thing to search after. He says, wisdom is vanity too. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 1.16. He said, I said in my heart, I will acquire great wisdom, surpassing all that were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. And in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Because remember who Solomon is. Solomon is the guy who God said, you can have anything you want. And he said, I want wisdom. And God made him the wisest man alive. So if ultimate meaning, if ultimate purpose could be found in being the smartest guy, the wisest person, the most educated, the the greatest intellect, Solomon would have found it. But he says it's just vanity. And really, if you think about it, if everything is vanity, what does it matter if you're the wisest person in the world? And know all about it if all the things you know about turn out to be hebel. They turn out to be vapor. In fact, you guys will realize that some of the smartest people in history have sometimes been the most miserable because they can see it. They saw the vanity. They saw the mist. He says, in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. You might say, okay, well, that's not really my thing. Anyway, you know, it's not so much about the work, and it's not so much about being smart or wise. I just, you know, like to have as much pleasure as I can. I just like to have as much fun as I can, have as many good experiences as I can. Solomon says, I've tried that too. Ecclesiastes 2.1, he says this, I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. He's saying this to himself. I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, and my heart was still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what's good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks and 
More than anybody before me in Jerusalem, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both male and female, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I experienced in doing them. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Just keep in mind, guys, this is Solomon. He built all these houses and parks and pools. And he grew actual forests for himself. And he had, you know, slaves to take care of everything. And he had tons of wealth and livestock and gold. And singers. You know, when he has a party, he doesn't use Spotify. He had the actual bands, right? Like this guy had everything. And if you're after sensual pleasures, there were the women. He hints at it here, but we know from 1 Kings, Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. It's just like unimaginable. It's bizarre. One wife's hard enough. She's great, by the way. But, you know, like 300 seems like, you guys know, that's not the best idea. But he had all these women, all these sensual pleasures. Guys, you could try to find meaning in self-indulgence, or you could just take Solomon's word for it. And he had more resources to run the experiment than you do. Like your silly little parties and your, you know, little vacations and stuff are nothing compared to Solomon. He had all the resources. He ran the experiment. In fact, it says in Ecclesiastes 2.12, for what can the man do who comes after the king? It's all been done. And he says it's meaningless. You might say, well, I'm not really the partying type. I just like to have nice things and feel financially secure. And I would just say, careful. Money and possessions are also empty. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Because money and possessions will not satisfy. We actually have a fancy psychology term for this. It's called the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation. And the idea is is that when you get new things, we have new experiences, when you have new possessions, you get a temporary little uptick of happiness, right? But it doesn't last. You know, it turns out we always kind of return to the same level of happiness. And you guys know this, you know? For me, it's a gadget. I'm like... I sell an iPhone 12. I want to buy a new one. I want them to show me something that's going to that's gonna thrill me. I look at the rumors about what's coming. Like, surely they're going to do something that's going to excite me, you know? And when you go to get it, you're like, got this, I don't know, I get this, like, thrill. Like, this is going to change everything. I'm going to be so much more organized. I'm going to take better pictures, and everything's going to be different. And it's not. It's not, you know? I'd like them to try, but it doesn't happen. And just like the things that you think right now, you think, oh, if I just had this career advancement, if I just had this money, if I could just go on these vacations, if I just had, you know, this or that, that somehow it would make everything right, it won't. King Solomon, guys, is such a great guide to show us that everything is vanity, everything is mist, everything is vapor, because he had it all. Like, Solomon actually went to the top of the mountain you're trying to get to. He actually got to the top, and he looked around, and there was nothing there. You know, some of the richest people in the world are the most miserable because they got to the top of the mountain and they saw nothing was there. Problem with us is that we will never get to the top of the mountain. And so we keep on trying, thinking that if we get there, it'll take care of things, and it won't. 
one of the most insane people in our culture, Jim Carrey, he said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer, right? Wisdom from the, from the, from the crazy man. Solomon has seen the top more than anyone, and he can tell you there's nothing there. So, I mean, you could try to run the experiment like everybody else, or you could believe the results he gives you. This is a vanity, too, of life itself. There's so many ways that life seems completely random, senseless, unfair. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says this, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. This sounds so different than the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 9.11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle of the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. For a man does not know his time, like a fish that is taken in an evil net, and like a bird that is caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time, and it suddenly falls upon them. And death makes life seem meaningless. Ecclesiastes 9.2 says this, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to all, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who doesn't sacrifice, to the one who's good and so to the sinner, to the one who swears and the one who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to them all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are so full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. And then verse 5 says, and the memory of them is forgotten. That last part is actually a really good argument for the meaninglessness of life, is the being forgotten part. How many of you guys know anything about your great-great-grandparents? Great-great-grandparents, anyone? Okay, we got one, two, three. Okay, you got a couple. Okay, good. How many of you know anything about your great, great, great grandparents? Anyone? Were you guys Mormon at some point? No, I'm just kidding. Because um, they do genealogies. Just messing around. Okay, how about great, 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 great grandparents? Seriously, you guys keep going. How far back? Let's not keep playing this game. How many generations? Wow. Okay, so that's unusual. Okay, that's unusual. Anyone else? 1700s. Okay, okay. And this, this exception actually proves the point, which is we'll be forgotten in very short order. Like for me, it's great-grandparents. Great-great? I don't think so. We'll be forgotten quickly. And it's a great argument, guys, for the meaninglessness of life, right? If materialism is true, then what happens is, materialism being the idea that all there is is what you can see, if it's true then eventually humanity goes extinct, the sun burns out, the universe goes into a deep cool forever, and no one remembers anything that happened here because there is nobody to remember it, right? There's no God, there's no, no remembrance of anything. If that happens, guys, do our lives mean anything, right? It's a pretty strong argument. I mean, even living for your kids seems to be vanity at that point when you pull back the lens that far. There's nothing there, okay? So that's where he leaves us with this first strand. Everything is vanity, meaningless, it's hebel, it's vapor, there's no point. But that's not all, okay? And you guys are glad for that. Because there's another strand, there's actually three strands. Remember, there's, there's two more strands in Ecclesiastes, and the second one is to fear God. God's mentioned 40 times in Ecclesiastes, most dramatically at the end. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says, The end of the matter, after all that's been heard, is this. 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So the book ends with, you know, everything's kind of meaningless, everything's amiss, it's all striving after the wind, and then at the end he says, fear God and keep his commandments. So, so there is meaning, and it's going to be found in God. And what's interesting is once you really see God at the end, as you go back through Ecclesiastes, you see that God was actually through the book over and over again. There's a, there's a strand about God throughout all this meaninglessness, all this vapor. There's this strand about God that makes everything have some meaning, right? He keeps popping up throughout the book. It's as if Colette's saying, everything's meaningless, that's meaningless, that's meaningless, that's meaningless. And then 40 times throughout the book, it's like as if God puts up his hand and he goes, hey, over here, meaning here, you know? He's popping up and he's saying, here's the meaning. And then we notice this phrase over over again in Ecclesiastes. It's under the sun or under heaven. It's mentioned 29 times. It's actually everything that's under the sun that's meaningless. It's, It's things in and of themselves without looking up and seeing God above the sun, right? And if we look at just the horizontal things, we see meaninglessness. But if we look up, then we see meaning as we see God. So the book does. And so there's actually these strands, there's these horizontal strands in the book of Ecclesiastes that are just like everything under the sun, looking around, everything's meaningless. But then there's these vertical strands woven into the fabric of the book that point up to God and say, that's where you can find meaning. Everything isn't meaningless if you find him. Isn't that cool? And that's why the book, because it's got these horizontal and vertical strands, that's why sometimes it sounds so contradictory to itself and the rest of scripture, is because it depends on which way you're looking, right? So is life meaningless? Depends on where you look. If you look horizontal under the sun, it sure looks that way, right? And there's really good arguments for it, that it's meaningless. But if you look at the vertical strands, you look up, you see God, you see meaning. Or Ecclesiastes talks about, like, all the dead go the same place. Righteous, unrighteous, even animals, everybody just goes the same place. Is that true? Well, if you look horizontally under the sun, that's sure what it looks like. But if we look vertically and we see God, something above our physical eyes, then we see that that's not the case. And with each mention of God, it's like Ecclesiastes injects a little bit of meaning into this world that seems meaningless, right? Or use another metaphor, it's like a handhold, you know, if you do rock climbing, it's like a handhold where it's something you can grab onto, and it mentions something about God, you can grab onto that, and that's not going to, like, disappear in your hand. It's going to be solid, you know? You can grab a hold and you go, okay, life means something, life's valuable, because I have this that I know about God. It's like a handhold that you can grab onto, it won't evaporate in your hands. And here's a few of them few mentions of God in Ecclesiastes that are those handholds where we go, okay, I have this. First one is God gives good gifts. Ecclesiastes 3.13 says this, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in their toil. This is God's gift to man. So if in this world that looks so meaningless, the gifts that we have, the pleasures that we have, the, the, the good things that we have in this life are a gift from God, then, then the world isn't meaningless, right? Suddenly if there's, there's a gift giver, there's somebody to be grateful to. There's somebody that's reaching out to us. There's somebody that's, that cares for us, right? It's a handhold in this world that seems meaningless. There's also that God's works endure. Ecclesiastes 3.14. I perceive that whatever God does endures. Okay, well, if this is all miss and this is all vanity and this all just, we can't rely on it, but God's works endure, then okay, that's something that endures, you know? Like whatever God does, whatever he does for me, whatever he does in me is something that will endure. There's another one, Ecclesiastes 3.17. It says, I, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So if there's a judgment, right, then it's not meaningless, right? Because the injustice that's so maddening, we know it's going to be taken care of, and we know that our lives matter because there's a judgment. There's, there's a God who judges. God designs our days, Ecclesiastes 7.14. 
In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Once again, some meaning that you're like, okay, there's meaning, right? He's crafted my days. Whether they're, they're good or they're terrible, they're crafted by God. And so there must be some design. There must be some meaning. God rewards, Ecclesiastes 8.12. Though the sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, that's part of the maddeningness, right, of this world, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. That God will somehow, and this kind of hints that it's going to be much, much later, will somehow work all of the terrible things for our good. So it's going to make sense at some point. It doesn't make sense now. If all those things are true, guys, then life can't be meaningless, Right? It might be confusing, it might be frustrating, it might be maddening, but it can't be meaningless, it can't be vanity, because there's God. You have a God that you can wrestle with for meaning. You might not know what the meaning is, but you can wrestle with him, there must be meaning, there's a God to wrestle with. And there's a God you can trust when the answers aren't forthcoming. There's a God who's good and wise and he's just and, and he will not evaporate on you. You know, when you reach out and you take hold of him, he won't evaporate like the world will. But here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing with our world and with our culture and even with us. As sinners, we don't naturally want the second strand. I don't know if any of you felt it was jarring. All of a sudden, it comes out, fear God and keep his commandments. I don't know if that was jarring to you, but it might be jarring to you because naturally, we don't want to hear that. That sounds confining. That sounds like taking away our freedom. We want the meaning that I just described, but we we want to be free from God's rule. As sinners, that's what we naturally want. We don't want him telling us what to do. We, we want to be free. We want our sin more than we want meaning. And guys, this is a very, very clear sign of something that's really wrong with us, right? If something is sin, it's a suicidal bent away from God who's given us all the goodness we have in our lives, and yet we don't want him. This warpness is in all of us. We, we heard it in our confession of sin, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Or Ecclesiastes 7.29. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We have, haven't we? Have we sought out many schemes? We have sought out many schemes. Right? That's how we got into this hevel, right? is that we sought out schemes. And for generations, our culture has encouraged us to choose to believe in a meaningless, godless world so we can be free from his authority. You guys familiar with that? It's like the choice is to believe that this world is godless, that there is no God, so that we can be free. And the honest philosophers have always told us that if there's no God, there's no actual meaning, right? That's the honest response is no God, no meaning. There's no way to really build meaning without there being a God. And uh, the problem is no one can live like this. And the ones who have tried have either gone full self-destructive or even taken their own lives. The dishonest ones, the ones with the pretty memes on social media, tell us that we could find our own meaning. Yeah, there's no God, but you can make your own meaning. The problem with that, guys, is that meaning you made up is made up meaning. I didn't do anything fancy there. Meaning that you made up is made up meaning. Right? It's fake by definition. So you can say like, yeah, there's no God, but I choose to live, this is my meaning or whatever, but it, you made it up. Made up meaning is ma made up. And Kohelet's already shown us that there's nothing in this world solid enough to give you a reason to live. So you can convince yourself there's no God, or at least the, the better play, I think, the more subtle play is, there's no God that you can know. 
He could be out there, but we can't know him. Same thing. You can convince yourself of that to think that you're free, but you have to face the fact that you're choosing a world that is completely meaningless. And it's a terrible price to pay for fake freedom, right? It's a price that our culture is paying every day, by the way. We chose freedom over meaning. We chose a godless world. And we're paying the price as our culture crumbles. And the other thing, too, guys, is that it's a totally unnecessary trade. What if I told you that you could have both meaning and freedom? (laughs) What if I told you that you could have full meaning and you could have full freedom? That you could have the meaning that comes from knowing God. You can't get more meaning than that. You get the meaning that comes from knowing God, and you could have the freedom of knowing that God is completely for you. What if I told you you could have that? Isn't that amazing? That the only constraints on you, you know, like, I don't know about this commandment thing, the only constraints on you would be the constraints of love. That God loves you and you love him. You're constrained by your love for him, right? Total meaning, total freedom. Guys, in Jesus Christ, God has given us a gift of meaning and freedom. And what's so cool about Jesus, many things cool, I know. But one thing that's cool is when he arrived in that Galilean countryside going around teaching, it was so obvious that the great Kohelet had arrived, right? In fact, Jesus even said of himself, someone greater than Solomon is here. I mean, here's a preacher that's uttering the most amazing proverbs and sayings and parables and teachings. He's like dropping supernatural wisdom constantly. People are like, no one ever taught like this man, you know? He's obviously someone special. Here was the true son of David, the preacher who's king over Israel. Jesus Christ, the one who so perfectly showed us how everything under the sun is vapor, right? That message was clear with him. And he also showed us how the only thing that's solid, the only thing that we can really trust in is him and his kingdom. And his kingdom was the only solid thing. He said it was like a treasure hidden in a field and it's worth selling all of the hebel of this world to have. You know, in Jesus, we have one who so beautifully feared God and kept his commandments. And what's really great about that, too, is it shows us how beautiful that life is. So what would a life be like if I, if I perfectly feared God and kept his commandments? It would look like Jesus' life. And who doesn't want that life? Who doesn't want a life that's so full of meaning and freedom as Jesus's? Of all people. And, 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 you know, another thing to think about, too, is if you follow the book of Proverbs, which is 100% true, and, of course, Ecclesiastes is 100% true, but they're saying, they're talking about different situations. But what you'd expect, right, what you'd expect if we lived in a world that was working right, you would expect that Jesus, of all people, should be blessed with a long, happy life because of his perfect righteousness, right? Be like, this is the man God should bless. And yet what happened? His life was cut short by injustice what seems like the most senseless act in history. And his friends, I mean, think about his friends. They just found the most amazing person. They they didn't even know somebody like this could exist, and they lose him. You know, the beautiful life of Jesus, like, evaporated out of their hands. Seems like just complete vanity. And yet that wasn't the end, right? Jesus was raised from the dead. He was given indestructible life. You guys remember his resurrected body, how it could pass through walls? You know, people go like, oh, well, was he kind of like a mist, and he could pass through walls? The door was the mist, Jesus' resurrected body was more solid than the door. That's why he could pass through doors, right? He was 100% solid, real, full, the fullest of life. And Jesus' death, guys, was not in vain. He, he died in our place for our sins. He died to turn all of our hebel into glory. Meaning and freedom both found in Jesus. The meaning of knowing God. He meant, there's no better meaning than to know God and to know that he loves you and accepts you as he does his own son, Jesus. And then there's the freedom, right? 
is the freedom of knowing him and being transformed by him. So everyone who fears God admits that they fail to keep his commandments and receives Jesus has him. And he's somebody that will never vanish on you. You know, and I just say, if you don't know him today, take hold of him. Grab hold of him by faith. Say, I want him. Call out to him in prayer and say, I want Jesus as my Savior. I want to have him. I want him to have me. And this will change your life because there's three chords, right? And I'll have to go kind of quickly through this. But there's, there's three chords. There's three strands. There's everything is vanity, and we enjoyed the bleakness of that. And then fear God. So God is what brings the meaning into the world. And then enjoy the vanity. Enjoy all the hebel that God gives as gifts. And this is actually a really common theme in Ecclesiastes. It's one you don't notice. But take a look at Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Or Ecclesiastes 5.18 is similar. Behold, I have seen to be a good and fitting thing to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him. This is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. And Ecclesiastes 8.15 says something similar. He says, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. And there's a whole bunch of these, which is really interesting for a book that has a reputation for being depressing, like how many exhortations there are to enjoy the fleeting gifts God gives in this life. Isn't that amazing? You think, okay, well, how do these fit together, though? And the way they fit together is this. First, he shows us all the things in this world that we might want to build our meaning on, on a hope in instead of God, is vapor. You grab hold of it, and it's just going to be gone. You can't trust it, right? And then he shows us that we could have solid meaning, we could have solid hope in knowing and being loved by God. Okay, that's the second theme. And then once we've found that, we can go out in the world and enjoy all the fleeting pleasures of this world as gifts of God. Isn't that great? So we're not expecting to hold on to them to give us our hope, but they're fleeting gifts, and we're going to enjoy them as God gives them. We're going to enjoy the days when they're good, and we're going to endure the days when they're bad, but we're going to recognize that this world is the get our gifts from God. So you can enjoy fleeting things, like the Super Bowl. It's a fleeting thing. It's great. Go Eagles, right? You have to root for the Eagles, right? But to, to, to know, guys, that, that these are all gifts from God. You see how you're dealing with the world's things differently? You're not expecting them to be solid. They're fleeting, but you're enjoying them as gifts. And guys, there's another really cool thing in Ecclesiastes. To know that you're approved of by God in Christ, to know that you're right with him, frees you to enjoy the good days as gifts and endure the dark times, right? Knowing that you are acceptable and approved by God because of Christ frees you to enjoy the good days and be sustained in the dark days. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes 9-7. It says this, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. We should have that on a little card. That's actually an amazing passage on living in the joy of the gospel, right? Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. If you're in Christ, he has approved of you. He's approved of you in, in, in Christ's works, right? 
and then you should enjoy his gifts. Now, some of us struggle with the first strand. Some of us, and we all struggle to some degree, with the first strand of trying to grab onto these vaporous, fleeting things and go, like, I'm going to hope in this. This is going to be my meaning. This is what I'm going to live for. Some of us struggle with that. Some of us, though, and you know who you are, struggle with the third strand, which is enjoying the gifts of God in this world. I know I do. You know? I struggle with that. You know, I struggle with that sometimes because I know they won't last. You know? Um, you know, sometimes you have these great pleasures and, and you think, especially with family and friends, and you think, man, this isn't going to last. You know, and you just have this sense of like, maybe I shouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> you know? But what's, what's really great about Ecclesiastes is it shows us that we're not counting on these to be ultimate things right? And that Christ is going to turn all this hebel into glory in the world to come, right? This book has helped me so much because I don't have to hold on to those vaporous things. I can enjoy them as gifts of God, and then I can know that somehow this is just like a, it's just like a little foretaste, just like a little glimmer of what's coming in the future. Something better is coming later, right? Something better is coming in the world to come. You know that the Israelites, they were given the promised land, and they were given the promised land as a foretaste of the better land to come, and they were told, go enjoy it, you know? Eat the food, eat the produce, you know, enjoy this blessing. But know that this isn't the real thing. There's something more coming. And that's what he has for us in the pleasures of this world. And, and Paul talks about this. Take a look at Romans 8. We'll end on Romans 8. Paul uses the Greek version of the word hebel, vapor, in Romans 8. He uses the word futility, right? Same idea. That nothing lasts, that, that we can't count on it, that it doesn't quite deliver. Romans 8 says this, 8.18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's really beautiful because, you know, at least the Old Testament word for glory was, was a sense of weightiness, you know? The things of this world are vapor. There's a glorious weightiness to the future hope, the thing that's coming. It's going to be more solid. Like Jesus' body was more solid than this world. It's going to be a more solid thing. Anyway, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. And then listen to this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, vapor, hebel, same idea, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's the resurrection, right? In the resurrection, uh, Christ will finally turn all the vaporous things that we've held on to and the vaporous things that, that have failed us. He will turn them solid. He'll turn them into glory. All these things that, you know, we lose like a vapor will be restored in the world to come. Every way this world has failed to satisfy us, Christ will satisfy us. Resurrected bodies in a resurrected world. All injustice is made right. Death reversed. All our lives will be remembered. Remember that, like, argument for meaninglessness of not being remembered? Like, God remembers. We will remember. We'll pick up where we left off. Our lives will not be forgotten. All of our labors and sufferings will be rewarded. Nothing will be hebel, all will be glory. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, 
We live in a very Ecclesiastes world, and uh, we're so thankful that this book meets us where we're at and then shows us all throughout that you're there and that you're going to triumph over it and you're going to make all things new. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as people who are right before you to then enjoy all the things of this world as your gifts, as gifts from you, not our gods, not our idols, but as gifts. And we pray, Lord, that we would really enjoy them. We pray, Lord, that we would enjoy this world as those who are sons and daughters of the king of this world. This is your world. As Paul said, all things are ours. We pray, Lord, that none of these things would ever capture our hearts and imaginations in such a way to replace you, but that we would return to you in gratitude and love for all that you've given. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here that doesn't know you, that's that's come in and this is all just very foreign to them, I just pray, Lord, that they would reach out today, even during these next couple songs, even during communion, that they would reach out and take hold of your son Jesus and find life in him and find meaning in him, find hope in him, find a future in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.